ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Formula One is back. I'm Matt from P1 with Matt and Tommy, the only F1 podcast you need to keep you up to date across the 2023 season. We'll be with you across every single race weekend with instant reaction to the biggest stories as soon as the chequered flag falls. So if you're a seasoned F1 veteran or you've just started watching Drive to Survive, we've got you covered. Search P1 with Matt and Tommy, hit that subscribe button and start listening now. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, my name is Jim. This is my podcast, The Bloody Vegans. You're very welcome to it. Each week I'll be travelling ever deeper into the world of veganism, discovering along the way a multitude of viewpoints, from the political and ethical to the practical. I'll be doing this through a series of conversations, each aiming to further illuminate my understanding and hopefully yours of all things plant-centric. And this week is no different. Before I tell you about this week's guest, we should do a little bit of admin. There are a number of ways to support the Bloody Vegans podcast. Uh, These are them. Uh, So if you head to Bloody Vegans podcast, the Bloody Vegans podcast.co.uk, I should say, get the web address right, that'd help. Um, And head to BVP merch, or indeed uh, the Green Gazelles Club Shop, the world's first uh, rugby... No, it's not the world's first rugby team at all, the world's first (laughs) vegan rugby team. Uh, Head to that address and head to those two particular pages. And any purchase from there will help support the Bloody Vegans podcast. And of course, if you're purchasing something from the Green Gazelles Club Shop, not only is supporting Bloody Vegans Productions, but you are also supporting the world's first vegan rugby club, which is exciting in itself. Um, so uh, that's the admin, I think. I think that's all done. Let's get on to this week's guest. It was an absolute honour and a privilege. I know I say that pretty pretty regularly with, with guests, but it really was to speak to Michelle Thieu. She is the um, CEO, no less, of Cruelty Free International. Many of you may know it as the Leaping Bunny. It's kind of the gold standard, I would I'd probably describe it as, uh, for cosmetics, personal care, household products, when it comes to recognising whether something is cruelty free and um, and not just vegan. We talk, we talk about the distinction between the two, actually, in this podcast. Um, so uh, we'll get into that in a moment. But the scale of this this particular issue, animal testing for uh, medicinal purposes, quote unquote, or cosmetics, etc., is is massive. Uh, the numbers are in the hundreds of millions um, across the world, which is just. Um, staggering and um, I, I direct actually if you're not too familiar with um, particularly um, the the animal testing uh, that goes on in the medical route I know some some folks who are in the kind of vegan community who I've spoken to recently have said you know well is this kind of a necessary evil they kind of know it's not and they feel like a, a bit of a you know they feel very uneasy and an uncomfortable feeling with it but don't really know how to how to put that point across when their sort of non-vegan friends and family are um, are sort of confronting them on, well, this is a necessary evil. We must do this. Let's look at all the 
the the recent vaccine work, for example. You know, if it wasn't for animal testing, we wouldn't have all these vaccines and so on and so forth. Um, I would direct you to an episode of a of a podcast that I happen to produce called um, Think Like a Vegan, uh, which is an amazing podcast uh, from the authors of the book of the same name, Amelia Lease and uh, Eva Karalambidis. And um, if you check out the episode with uh, Professor Professor Aisha Akhtar, um, she does a far better job than I ever could of talking about um, just how ineffective animal testing is um, when it comes to you know med- medicine, basically, um, let alone cosmetics, where it's obviously completely null and void. But anyway, that that's my um, that's my two penneth. Uh, I'd recommend you check out that podcast; it's well worth a listen. Uh, but in the meantime, let's get on to this one. So, um, I am joined by Michelle Thew, CEO of Cruelty Free International. Please do enjoy, and if you do, why not share the episode with someone who might also? Thank you so much. Uh, enjoy your listening. Well, I've had um, an awfully long journey, actually. So um, I first went vegetarian when I was 13. So um, I was Mm -hmm. at home, um, actually had a mum who was already vegetarian. So I'd been vegetarian when there was just nothing that you could eat or drink or buy easily. Um, And I went vegetarian then. And then when I went to university at 18, I went vegan. So... Over that time, there may have been, you know, one or two moments when I was traveling for work in my early 20s when couldn't eat anything, maybe dipped in and out of vegetarianism. But certainly for the last few decades have been fully committed and vegan. So it's just been my whole life. Um, And obviously the transition between what you could eat all those decades ago (laughs) And what you can eat now is is just astonishing. Yeah, I was I was going to ask, like, what would you see as? Oh, it's a big question, I know, but what would you see as the kind of the the big, um, you know, the, the big milestones, if you like, in terms of the what you've seen since you you became vegan right up to now? What what are the, the biggest things that kind of stand out as as signs of I don't know progress? I'd, I'd guess. Well, in terms of food, um, and there's so much progress in my you know what I do for a living and ending animal tests, and we we'll talk about that later. But in terms of food, I mean, frankly, when I was a student, you were living on jacket potatoes and beans. That's that's what you would eat in the students' union. Almost every day, it was jacket potato and beans. If you went anywhere, it was salad and chips. And if you were travelling, you would grab a bag of crisps. I mean, that's literally what it was like all those years ago. And even to get things like soya milk, you were going to the health store across town. You were making a very specific change. So the two things I've noticed, obviously, are the huge explosion of availability. So you can go to any supermarket now and, you know, you're not just saying, do you happen to have soy milk and begging? You're like, do you want soy or almond or oat? Or So that range of just mainstream choices okay. is different. And also the real difference when you go anywhere, I spent most of my life saying, right, okay, could you make me that without that? Could I, could you just take that off? I see you've already got broccoli. Could I just have it with the, whereas now you go place and they say, here's our vegan menu. So just the availability 
of mainstream choices. And, you know, if you're out with people who aren't vegan, it used to be that you would have to say, it's fine, we'll go anywhere. Don't worry about me. We'll go anywhere and I'll just have the... Um, or you would say, yeah. can we go to the vegetarian or vegan restaurant? And now I just, you, you just go anywhere. And if there isn't a vegan menu, <laughs> there will be choices. And that, in my lifetime, has been astonishing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Thinking about, like, back, back to university, were, were you kind of a part of a, of a group who were, who were, you know, along the same sort of lines of thinking? Or were you a bit of a lone wolf? There were a few of us. So I was active in the university animal group, as you would expect. So, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, doing protesting and letter writing and doing all those kinds of things. On my floor, I was the kind of cook for the floor because I've always been passionate about food. So I was the one that would just make the huge, you know, think vats of chickpea curry or big lots of veggie mince in the kitchen and frankly whether they were vegan or not what hungry student is not going to eat that at one o'clock in the morning so <laughs> it's very popular um and there were a couple of my closest friends um one of whom in particular happened to be vegan so i wasn't alone but there were certainly not very many of us and i would imagine life on campus now is is an entirely different experience if you're a vegan student I can only imagine. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, thinking about your activism, like you said, you were, you've been you've been involved since since day day one of being vegan, really, of, of, in, in campaigns and so yeah. on. Tell us a little bit about how you got into those things, some of the things that you were involved in, and, and kind of the the journey through through that world. I think probably it. it to be honest, it started with my mum. So um, she has has was one of those people who she describes as very young, just did not want to eat meat. It was just very other to her. And then that was in a time when, you know, it wasn't really recognised that you could have those dietary preferences. So she would get whatever she was given for dinner and just not eat the meat. Um, and then I yeah. remember um, I, from being very young, maybe would see um, particular images come to mind, leaflets of seal clubbing or, you know, leaflets about mm. animal experimentation. And very young those images stuck with me. And also, of course, mm. I already had a mum who was, you know, very accepting of the fact that I wanted to go vegetarian young. And then when I went off to university yeah. at 18, both of my parents went vegan. So my mum and dad actually went vegan right. at that time. And that was very unusual for people from their generation. So mm. the activism always came along with the diet for me. So... I know that people now go vegan for a whole range of reasons, some of which are diet-related or health-related. For me, it's always been very much an ethical decision. And I just think that I'm mm. also fortunate that it happens to be the best diet for you. But that's the kind of bonus of my ethical choice rather than me being driven into it yeah. through um, diet-related reasons. And so I've always been active i was always a letter writer or a campaigner um right from being young as um you know would you say that kind of the like you said there's there's been a, a kind of explosion of sort of quote-unquote veganism maybe, maybe you could call it there's a lot of has it been an explosion of plant-based sort of yeah. diets as yeah. well as opposed to sort of veganism as such it, it, it do you see that as kind of 
potentially problematic or having some pitfalls? And do you think we've maybe lost something in the kind of activist space? Or or, or do you see it as actually, you know, let, let's get everybody in, into the conversation and then go from there? I'm a get everyone into the conversation person by instinct. And actually, from the perspective of the animals, I frankly don't think they care very much why people don't eat meat (laughs) as long as they stop. So I have always had the view that, you know, if you come to this for health or you come to this for ethics, then what tends to happen, I found with friends of mine who've entered this from a, a diet point of view, once you become curious about plant-based eating and about veganism, it's not very long before you're reading and you're understanding and then you're learning more about that journey and then you're learning more about what animals go through to provide food and then very often the ethics will join the health. So for me, this is just about making those lifestyle choices in whichever way you can and then you can start the conversation. Yeah, I, I tend to be on your side of that that argument. In the world of like polarized social media, you you do you do sometimes sort of look at things and think we're kind of in a bit of a race to kind of outdo each other. Sometimes like who's the most who's the most vegan or the least vegan, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, and I've I've never been very comfortable with that. And bear in mind that I lead an organisation now that campaigns for an end to animal testing. There will be people Mm. who want to see an end to animal testing who are not vegan, who have not got to that Mm. point. They may have a very single issue focus, Um, but I want to welcome them all onto the road because if what you do is you turn people away for not being good enough at the beginning, then they may just turn off the road. They may not ever get to the point that I would like them to be. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and 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 ultimately, you know, if if we are in that kind of mindset of being uh, activists for for the animals, then like you said, you know, animals don't really care how you got there as long as you got there. Yeah, um, and sort of, yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you. And we're we're um, we want change. I I I do what I do every day mm. because I want change, not to feel like just I'm doing the right thing but that you're creating change in the world. And if you want to be a social movement, you have to bring people with you. There is no other way to create the change that we all want to see than by bringing people with you. Couldn't agree more. Um, Let's let's talk about Cruelty Free International. How how did you, when did you first become aware of their work? And then how how have you got to where you are now? It's it's amazing and an honour to have you with us. Thank you. well, where I am now is, is frankly, doing a job that, you know, I, I just love. I mean, it, it's, I'm one of those very fortunate people that can have a role that chimes directly with my personal values. So I feel very honoured and privileged to have this role. I was first aware of um, Cruelty Free International when they were then BUAV. So people that have been in the movement mm-hmm. for a long time will remember BUAV, British Union for the Abolition of Vivisection. And I will have first campaigned for them when I was at school, actually. And when I was at university, would invite speakers from the BUAV to come to our university and talk about animal testing. So it had always been kind of part of my life. I did a degree in psychology 
And then, um, which was difficult to navigate because I remember turning down university offers because they expected you to do experiments on, you know, rats and mm. mice and pigeons. And so I, I went to a university that would enable me to work my way through modules that were human focused. And then I mm. went into a career actually working with children and families who had special educational needs and ended up running the Deaf Children's Society. But my heart, although I loved that work and was very committed to it, I'd always been passionate about animal protection. And the role came up as CEO of BUAV. And they were looking for someone at the time that not only was committed to the values, which I obviously was, but who also could lead a non-profit organisation. So I had kind of, you know, postgraduate qualifications in voluntary sector management and was running a, a bigger charity at the time. And so they they offered me the role. And then that was back in 1999. So I did that role for quite a few years. Then I went to the US to run the Animal Protection Institute, doing everything from campaigning on you know, wild animals and circuses to running a primate sanctuary to a whole bunch of stuff across the States. Then I came back to BUAV and then transformed the organisation into Cruelty Free International, which much more directly reflects what we do. And here I am. Yeah, well, let's, let's get into it. So it's, what, for folks who don't know, how would you describe Cruelty Free International, the work you do and, and, and what, what it is that, as an organisation? We're an international non-profit organisation campaigning for an end to animal testing. That's the summary. So we don't work on other animal protection issues, so on farmed animals or wild animals or companion animals. All of our focus is on animals and testing. And essentially, the, the clue's in the name, we want to see a world that is cruelty-free. So we are campaigning to end all animal testing. So that ranges from product testing and beauty through to pharmaceuticals. Um, that's what we do as an organisation. And we do that in a variety of different ways. We have a kind of joined up model. So we work with corporates and we can talk a little bit more about that because that's where some of the really fascinating mm. progress has been. We work with corporates, we work with regulators internationally who basically set the standards for animal tests. And we work with governments from individual member state governments, governments like the UK, right through to the level of the United Nations to try and create change. And we do all of that by campaigning with ethical consumers and citizens and supporters to create that change. Where does the law sit in terms of this? You know, and I appreciate it's probably different by country, but mm. I, I'm just interested as to where, like, where, you know, you hear things as some countries it's it's a legal obligation to test on animals, other countries it's not, um, and it depends on the space, whether it's pharmaceutical, whether it's uh, cosmetic. Uh, uh, it'd be good to just understand a little bit of the, the landscape of it. Mm. You're exactly right in that it varies by country, and it also varies by sector. So, for example, if you take something like cosmetics and household products, there isn't a legal obligation to test products or their ingredients on animals. And we can talk about progress in that space later. Pharmaceuticals, mm. there is. 
um, they're governed by very different regulations. So our work in pharmaceuticals is to try and change those regulations, make sure that non-animal methods are pushed through the system and are used. Whereas our work in, say, product testing is much more about driving change through having businesses change their behaviour and governments bring in bans. So it, it is very different. What's really interesting about legislation in this space, however, is even if you look at a country like the UK, people think, well, we have legislation, you know, we have a partial ban, really, mm. on testing of cosmetics on animals. We have other animal welfare legislation that governs cruelty to animals. And we do have legislation that governs how you can use animals in laboratories, but that's effectively permissive. It's really setting guidelines right. for how you treat animals in laboratories, but it's enabling you to do things to animals in laboratories behind closed doors that otherwise would be an offence or would be cruel if they happened on the street. So when people talk about our great laws to protect right. animals in laboratories, they're effectively still codifying and enabling what you can do to animals, whereas generally yeah. other animal cruelty legislation <laughs> Would, would prevent that. But in terms of the patchwork, you're right, it's an absolute patchwork internationally. Um, different countries have different legislation um, and it's different for different sectors. And I'd presume that as an organisation, that means that the tools that you you need to employ to fight in, in these different areas are, are many and varied because it must be legislation on one hand, like trying to push through a change, and on another hand, it's... Well, there's legislation there, but it's not being enforced. I imagine it's just very, very complex in terms it, of the toolkit that you have to use. You're, you're absolutely right. So we have to push all of the levers all of the time. So, for example, um, there mm. may be situations where, you know, as a result of, say, um, an investigation, we'll have a focus on a particular establishment. Much more often, however, though, our focus is on governments. It's on creating a change in legislation. So we've been pushing country after country, for example, to have a ban on the testing of cosmetics on animals. But it might also be changing the regulation. If you can change sometimes just a couple of words in a regulation that is governing how animals are used in a particular test, you can save tens of thousands of animals not having to undergo that test in future years. So it's about demand. It's about enabling companies to do the right thing and move away from animal testing but it's also about legislation because demand will only take you so far so we work in some countries to change legislation and then it's also about those really significant international political signals so things like getting the united nations to pass a resolution on these issues so yes we work mm. in the courts if we have to you know we take governments to court where there are non-animal methods that they should be using and they're not. So we scrutinise, we legislate, we lobby, and we also encourage brands to do the right thing and we give citizens tools to enable them to be part of that. So it is a really complicated business and it's, mm. it's progressed because it's a very difficult and technical issue. It's progressed beyond simple public protesting. I mean, we still do that. So we still do, you know, high profile events and draw attention to issues. We do a lot of work with the media, but we're very often also behind closed doors in rooms, arguing about one or two words 
in a piece of legislation because that will impact the yeah. lives of tens and hundreds of thousands of animals for years to come. Is there, um, is there an appetite, broadly speaking, I appreciate this is a very broad question, but let, let's take the UK as an example. Is there an appetite that you're seeing from politicians to ch make change or, or are you seeing that actually what we need to do is it's it's really led by public opinion you know like if there's if there's an outcry in a certain space uh, and, and the one that comes to mind most recently is like M mbr and the the kind of the mm. the uh, using uh, beagles and so on and so forth uh, and because that's hit some some limelight and got some 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 um traction behind it in terms of like press i wonder does that sort of thing um encourage politicians to perhaps make change where they perhaps weren't thinking about that before mm. attention helps and high profile media and attention on the issue helps because obviously one of the issues that we have with animals in research is that they are hidden. This is a very secretive industry. Um, it's an industry that needs the light shining upon it. And so we need to make sure that those animal stories are heard. So that definitely helps. What we need though is systemic change. We don't just need change at one particular facility. Mm -hmm. We need change across the board. That's much harder to achieve. So that's why we need to deal with the demand. So we need to drive down the use of animals by getting companies to do the right thing, by changing legislation. Because while there is a demand and while legislation still requires it, you will still see those animals being used. So we're active at different points in, yeah. in that chain. In terms of politics, I think always been the case that there are some politicians and elected officials who care about this really deeply. This is a personal kind of moral calling for some politicians in different parts mm. of the political spectrum. And we've always had champions, and that's great. But we need governments that will actively, seriously take this issue on board. And sometimes we even get steps forward on other animal welfare issues, whether it be hunting or farmed animals. And still animals in laboratories are left behind because, A, it's very secretive, it's driven by a lot of industry interests and it's deemed to be very controversial and immediately you get the yes but it's a necessary evil. So even sometimes politicians who may be with us more broadly on a range of other animal welfare issues will stop at animal testing and that's why it's really important that organisations like ours, backed by our supporters, keep bringing this issue to the attention of politicians. Think about this idea of a necessary evil. Um, how much water does that argument hold? <laughs> it doesn't. So we, as an organisation, are, you know, we were founded in you know, 1878 on the basis of the moral argument. I mean, that, that's really clear. We're about that moral mm. argument. However, increasingly over the years, we've seen the scientific argument more and more come to the fore. And now I think it's it's really clear that not only would replacing animal tests be more humane, it would also clearly be more effective. So we've gone beyond the stage now where we can say, well, you can care about this morally, but actually scientifically this is still necessary. There are a whole range of mm. non-animal methods now that can be used. And actually for a lot of the 
you know, curiosity-driven research that takes place or the duplicative research, the alternative is just to stop. So we don't believe that this is a necessary evil. We believe there are very strong moral and now increasingly scientific arguments for bringing this to a close. Do you think that's that's quite an important um, point to get across in terms of the general public? Because, you know, if I think about conversations I've had, perhaps more so obviously with non-vegan folks and friends and family and so on, often that's a point where, um, and in fact I was just diverting slightly, but I, I was chatting with um, a, a fellow vegan the other, the other day about this particular subject and what he was saying is, I really struggle with that because I don't, I don't feel equipped enough to have that mm. discussion with my friends and family about particularly things like pharmaceuticals and and he said that actually he feels like since covid that that's that's actually even more difficult because people were you know many people were holding holding up the sort of the scientific achievement of the vaccine and therefore saying well there you go there's there's the prime example of why we have to do this um and he, he was saying he really struggles with that do you think it's kind of something that's it's important for us as as vegans to either seek that information out or for you know yourselves as an organization to kind of um, um, to give people that kind of information and make them feel more equipped yeah you're right we have whole sections on our website you know the facts and figures and the arguments and actually people are seeking out what are the arguments around this and it is no longer an either or I think people used to feel like you know either you had great medicine or you had animal welfare and you, you couldn't have them both together, mm. but it isn't an either or anymore, especially when we're seeing the huge failure rate, you know, 90% failure rate of new animal tested drugs in human trials. So, you know, lots and lots of kind of over-reporting of great breakthroughs in the media that never actually come through to, to, to proving um, great in terms of actual drugs. So this is an argument that we can win on science. There are lots of facts and figures out there. Um, and just because we have used animals in a particular instance, whether that's for COVID or any other thing, that doesn't necessarily mean that they were the best way to achieve the result. You know, we, we're always turning around and saying, yes, but animals mm. were used then and therefore, but we don't know what we could have achieved if we had taken animals out. And actually animals are really you know, unreliable predictors of human responses. I've, I've heard even scientists say, well, we're not 70 kilogram rats, are we? We are a different species. You get different yeah. responses in different species of, you know, rodents in animal tests. So to try and translate that to humans is, is not sensible. So we're looking for science to be modernised. We're looking for non-animal methods to be brought into play. And we're looking for that, that mindset change. And and you're right, as vegans who care about this issue, we don't have to simply say, well, I'm with you on, on beauty, but once it gets to pharmaceuticals, that's a different argument because, you know, increasingly we're demonstrating why non-animal tests and non-animal testing pathways would be the best way to, to deal with, you know, some of our, our clinical needs. Turning to things like the beauty and cosmetics, I'm intrigued as to whether there is, you know, we talked at the beginning about this sort of like at least a sense of real progress and an explosion of kind of plant-based diets and therefore, you know, people leading it, leading into veganism and so on and so forth. Um, and that, you know, that's fantastic and, and, and hopefully is leading more people to 
uh, through where they where they spend their pound um, alter the behaviour of companies and so on. Is that something that you're seeing? Are people coming to seek you out more now to to sort of say, okay, I own a XYZ cosmetics company and we need to do something about this, mainly driven by their commercials, but still, either way, uh, as we said earlier, the animals don't care um, what the motivation is. So are you seeing that? Absolutely. This is one of the positive developments and the real shifts in the last 20 years. So I recall when I first started campaigning on this issue, you know, the letter writing, the endless letter writing to brands to say, please, can you talk to us? Please, can you think about, please, can you come on board? There have always been those kind of standout, you know, pioneer brands. So you've always had the body shop and the co-op on the high street in the UK and mm. brands that have always done the right thing. But the explosion now in the last 2010, I would say probably the last three to five years, we've seen this very much reversed. So now more and more brands are coming to us asking if they can be approved as cruelty-free. So we we run this global Leaping Bunny program so people will recognise this if you go into a store, you pick up a bottle and you see the little Leaping Bunny symbol on the back with cruelty-free international. That's our international kind of gold standard for brands who want to go cruelty-free. And over the last few years, we've seen not only increasing numbers of, you know, startups and vegan and clean beauty brands, but also some of the major high street brands, you know, your Garnier's and your Avedas and your big brands on the high street stepping forward and becoming cruelty free. So we've seen an explosion mm. in consumer choice in this area, which is phenomenal. And I can not only then offer those choices back to ethical consumers, but we can work with those brands to then make a difference because as those brands don't use animal tests through their right. supply chain, less and less animals are being used. More and more suppliers of ingredients are now thinking there's an ethical marketplace out there we need to serve. And we directly work with those brands to take their message to government. So we took 8.2 million signatures to the UN with the body shop calling for change. Wow. So, you know, you can use the power of those voices now as we're getting more and more of the larger brands on board. So it's it's incredibly exciting in terms of that consumer choice. And then you see it feed through in real figures. You know, this year, for example, in the UK, we've seen for the first time um, no um, eye irritation tests on animals. That was a classic, you know, the dripping wow. substances into the eyes of rabbits. Yeah. Those tests we've seen disappear now in the UK. We've seen a big decrease in skin sensitization. you know, over 20% less of those tests used to scrape the skin off the back of the guinea pig, apply the test substance. We're seeing those, mm. those tests actually decline as non-animal methods come in and more and more consumers voice what they would like a big beauty brand so it's it's making a real difference yeah. i suppose thinking about the, that that piece we talked about earlier about um sort of the, the education of the, the public and people's understanding it, it'd be good to sort of just draw a, a line between vegan accreditation cruelty free accreditation mm. and and if there is a distinction what that distinction is there is a distinction so that's a really good point and actually a lot of people who are you know, committed vegans who want to do the right thing when they're shopping will assume that 
if a product is described as vegan, that also means that then it's not tested on animals. But they're actually two distinctive claims. So the Leaping Bunny claim is about animal testing. So if a brand is Leaping Bunny approved, they have driven animal testing out of their supply chain. They've done as much as they can um, to end animal testing. They've adopted a cutoff date. They open themselves up to audit. So we have a very rigorous programme for brands that have gone as far as they can to avoid animal testing. Vegan claims are, are different. They're about the ingredients rather than the testing. So people still need to think about both. So if you have a great beauty brand that you want to buy from, you have to look at them being vegan and also Leaping Bunny. An increasing number of Leaping Bunny brands do actually offer vegan ranges and a lot of them are transitioning to wholly vegan because they recognise that for people who care about animal testing, they also want to buy things free of animal ingredients. So the worlds are getting closer, but you still need to check for both claims. Do you, do you see businesses switching up recipes and switching up accreditations in their different countries? Might be a naive question, but I'm curious as to how companies navigate some of these legislative issues around, around the world, you know, from their point of view of production, like whether, you know, say, I think the one that sort of often gets held up, and I don't know if it's the only country, you know, but it's, uh, China often gets held mm. up as if your cosmetic brand sells in China, well, they have to test there. That's, that's a legal requirement. But if they also sell in the UK, I'm kind of intrigued as to whether by default, if you sell in both countries that the, you, you are therefore not cruelty free or whether actually a company is you're seeing companies kind of uh, switching i guess between countries and what they do yeah china is is a really um great point to raise so if we had been having this conversation three years ago we would have had to say that china was really effectively close to beauty brands that were cruelty free so if you were a Leaping Bunny brand, historically, mm. you've not been able to sell in China. So our brands have had to make a choice in the past between are we Leaping Bunny and cruelty-free or do we sell in China? And a number of them made that choice and stayed out of that market. So they lost revenue for not entering that market and they're to be applauded for that. What we did a few years ago mm. is we didn't want great cruelty-free brands to have to make a choice, exactly as you're saying, between their ethics and market share. Yeah. So we started working in China. We signed a memorandum of understanding with the Chinese authorities and we launched a pilot programme to enable working with us, between us, the brand, our partners in China and the government to see if there was a pathway through for brands to not have to trigger this required animal testing. So we launched that pilot programme and we actually took Bulldog the men's skincare brand, into that market as cruelty-free. And yeah. since then, there have been a lot of developments. So now we've reached the point, which is great, where China have changed their mandatory animal testing requirements now. So a brand no longer mm. has to animal test in order to enter China. That's a very new development. We've still right. got lots of requirements for Leaping Bunny brands about transparency and control. and But now... There are specific requirements from the Chinese government, but they do not require the level of animal testing they did before. And so we're now able to say to our Leaping Bunny brands, if you want to enter that market, you can work with us and we can make that happen. So that 
even is wow. changing. And that's a sign of the real progress that there's been globally. So there has been lots of progress. One of the difficulties working in this field is you always feel as well like you're having to look back and try and reclaim the ground you thought you'd won. Um, so, for example, right. we have had um, lots of issues with chemicals testing now. So we have you know, bans on cosmetics testing in the European Union, in the UK. And then we have chemicals legislation that's actually forcing companies to retest ingredients that were already safe. So we're campaigning now with the European Citizens Initiative to try and stop oh. that. So, you know, we're getting to the point now where, yes, we've made some great gains, but we're always having to defend what we've gained. And now there is a battle around chemicals legislation and making sure that existing safe ingredients aren't retested on animals. So it's always two steps forward, one step back. But in general, we're pushing in the right direction. That just adds a, another layer of incredible compl complexity, almost having to keep a check on on what, what you've done in the past where you thought you had a win. That's just, that's mind-blowing. On that kind of note, I, it, what popped into my mind there was was Brexit. Mm. You know, like, with with Brexit potentially... Um, Britain's exit from the EU mean it, would that would that have an impact on any kind of legislation that was in place that now isn't or, or vice versa? Yes, it does. Um, legislation there was EU wide legislation. Obviously, the cosmetics testing ban was EU wide. The government have committed to maintaining that in the UK. Chemicals legislation was also EU-wide, so a lot of the work that we've, we're doing on chemicals in the EU to try and prevent unnecessary animal tests, we now also have to make sure that when the government here sets up their own regime for testing chemicals, which they will be, that we make sure that animals are not used for that regime. So we're now having as an organisation both to push on things like chemicals legislation in Europe and also make sure mm. that we retain the best in, in the UK. This should be an opportunity for the UK. They have said repeatedly mm. during all of the conversations on Brexit, we heard it on other animal protection issues too, whether that was live exports or anything else, that this would enable Britain to be a leader. So we're saying, OK, then step forward, UK, and be that leader. So when you're designing your chemicals regime, make sure that that does not use animals. Um, we're calling on the UK government to commit to a strategy, to a target zero for animal testing. And that will need, it needs a strategy, it needs some targets. We've called for a minister for animal-free science. No one in government has mm. the responsibility for this specifically. So there are things the UK can do. Um, for us as an organisation, it means we have to be active in the UK, in Europe, as well as further afield. What, what does the accreditation process look like for, for companies? Like, how, how, To what level of you know, stringency does it sort of apply? It's very rigorous. So um, the days mm. of a company saying you know, we don't test and we don't ask anyone to test and can we just tick the box uh, are over. So we run this very rigorous programme. Um, we ask brands to check through their supply chain right down to the level of individual ingredients. We ask them to set a cut-off date 
beyond which they will no longer have animal testing. And that's usually 2013 to ally with the European Union ban. We ask them to open themselves up to audit. So we do regular independent external audits so that there's transparency. Um, and we ask them really to change the way they do business so that they will you know, buy and mm. source ingredients differently in future. So, you know, there are challenges for brands who want to avoid ingredients that are tested under chemicals regimes, and we work with them to help them navigate those challenges. But the Leaping Bunny is the best that there is on the, on the market. Yeah. Um, and that's because of things like that supply chain management and the independent audit. So I have a whole team of people Is who there, do just that. Thinking of obviously like the, the the Leaping Bunny, from my perspective, is one of those kind of gold standards of accreditation that I, if I see on a product, I kind of I trust that. But I, I was, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with the Vegan Society about the vegan trademark, and I kind of see the the two kind of in a in a similar kind of space. When I see the two on a product, I feel pretty assured that you know the right the right level of checking has been done. But something the Vegan Society said to me kind of astounded me at the time, which was that there's no there's no restriction on the word vegan, so folks can write vegan on it and. You know, and make up their own like logo and make it look like an accreditation and this kind of stuff. Is this is this something that occurs in the cruelty free space as well? Um, actually, one of the reasons that we first started the Leaping Bunny program um, just over twenty years ago was because there was so much confusion in the marketplace. So brands were recognising that there was an ethical consumer base and they wanted to appeal to people that didn't want animal testing, but they would put their own words on a bottle, a corporate philosophy statement, or lots of different, the amount of different versions of rabbits I've seen over the years. So brands would develop their own rabbit or their own logo. It's very confusing for consumers to know what you could trust. So animal protection organisations internationally Mm. came together and we formed our own programme and that's the Leaping Bunny and that's now evolved to be the gold standard. So yes, brands can say what they like, they can make claims. However, in the European Union, that's Mm. been increasingly toughened. So you're not supposed to make a general cruelty-free claim. And we have worked with the authorities in the European Commission to demonstrate that, you know, our Leaping Bunny programme goes above and beyond the law. So you shouldn't be making just a simple, Mm. generic, cruelty-free claim anymore. Um, and that's why, you know, having an approved program like the Leaping Bunny is so important for brands. Yeah, hundred percent. Just yeah, like that, that level of reassurance. Like, like I was saying about the the, the vegan trademark, I sort of have a, have a similar have a similar kind of feeling about the two. You know, when I see them, I, I feel I, I know where I am. Um, but but like you say, the, the brands do even to this day. You, you see different lettering or different wording or different logos sometimes Le- less so probably but um there's there's versions of that um you, you sort of often think as a consumer like maybe i should ask a question here so, yeah and then where, where do i place that kind of question about i mean we, it, you know? we've spent so. lots of years kind of um educating consumers to to cut through all of those different mm. labels and try and um, get some understanding. And actually, I guess you have to see it as progress. You know, brands wouldn't want to be advertising these criterion characteristics yeah. if there wasn't a market. Sure. But now we're embracing that market and saying, look, if you really want to do the right thing, 
you have to stand behind something that is credible and please come on board. And fortunately, more and more of them are. I'd, I'd love to turn a little bit to the investigative work that Cruelty Free International have done over the over the years and still do and so on. Like, I, I'm curious from a point of view of, obviously, a lot of your work, as you talked about, involves... Um, uh, challenging legislation, arguing over those those key couple of words, you know, all, all those all those aspects of 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 you know uh, changing systemically the issues that we that we see. When you get into that that world, because it's it's amazing that to be able to put a spotlight and show people what what's going on. Does it? Does it cause some some problems for you as an organisation in terms of once you once you do that once you investigate in that kind of way like you say this very secretive industry does it almost the more you do it the more it becomes difficult to kind of get in if you like the more the more secretive it becomes the more ob- obfuscated things are yeah I mean we we do the whole range of activity and I will always defend our right to do undercover investigations and to publish the results of those because I think it is important for those animals that we bear witness and that we shine a light on that suffering. And otherwise this is hidden and it is covered by, oh, don't worry, everything's fine. And then when there is an investigation, oh, it's just a bad Mm. apple. That was just that particular establishment, everything's fine. And we, we demonstrate very often that we're talking about, you know, the routine, the norm, You know, when you find cruelty in um, an establishment and the defence is, you know, well, no laws were broken, somehow that's even more worrying. Think that you're you're allowed to do this and yet no laws were broken. So whether we find, you know, direct acts of law breaking and sometimes we have taken governments and institutions to court or we find things that are not breaking the law are deemed to be routine in industry, then that of itself tells a story. Mm. So, yes, of course, you know, undercover investigations are difficult, they're resource intensive, um, but we will still continue to do them and to shine a light until we get to the point where we've we've ended all animal testing. And I think as an organisation, that can run alongside a lot of the bigger systemic work that we're doing to try and change legislation so yes it's it's this is not easy or straightforward work but whilst animals are there suffering in secret it's our responsibility to keep on doing that i guess speaks to the 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 point that you you made earlier about we need to push every lever um at at once it's not a case of like well we can just turn our attention to legislation you we need to do everything and and, uh, and more more power to you and and as an organization Um, those things are all connected you know if if we can raise public awareness mm. about something that's important if we can get as i said earlier a brand to come on board that then helps us with legislation that is using fewer animal tests that helps our scientists drive for more change so all of these pieces of the jigsaw are linked together and operate as one for us as an organisation. Absolutely. It'd be great to talk about the the campaigns that you've currently got going on and perhaps where where people, you know, you'd love to make some people aware of, of, of the work that you're doing and, and maybe even um, find out how they can support. Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so go to our website, 
that's obviously the first place to go. So cruelty-free-international.org. And that has a, not only some of the facts and figures and arguments that people might need, you were talking about earlier, it's also got a place where you can search for your favourite brand. And if, you know, they're not cruelty-free, tell us and we'll reach out to them. And it also covers our current campaigns. So in the UK, for example, we're running a Target Zero campaign um, to get the government to commit to a strategy. We're running a call to get that Minister for Animal Free Science so someone takes key responsibility. Mm. At the minute, if you're a citizen in the European Union and you're listening to this, or you have friends or family who are, you need to sign our European Citizens Initiative. So by the end of August, we need a million signatures to save cruelty-free cosmetics. So as I was talking about earlier, lots of threats from chemicals testing. This is a formal mechanism. The European Commission mm. has to respond if we hit a million signatures. So everyone who is an EU citizen or knows someone who is, there's an urgent call out for them to sign that. So there are a range of, of these efforts and advocacy tools on our website. So if anyone wants to, you know, find out about brands or learn the best arguments or get involved with our campaigns or, you know, send us a donation, everything we do is non-profit. All of that's on the website. Well, I'll, I'll definitely be popping links to all of that in the, in the show Thank notes. You. And particularly, like you say, that, that, that pressing one around, um, uh, around getting signatures if you're an EU citizen particularly. Um, whereabouts are we at in terms of progress with that when we, when we get to that, think about that million target? Well, we're over 750,000, so that's great. Right. But we've got, wow. you know, five weeks to hit the million, so we really need yeah. to, to drive that change. So as many people as possible, if you do nothing else, I mean, you're an EU citizen sign that petition yeah i mean to, to have got that far as well is so is so close to that kind of triggering um, number like it would yeah exactly I'll, yeah I implore everybody to do that <laughs> um michelle it's been amazing chatting with you a real education thank um, you. And, and an honor to speak with you um thank you so much for all the work you do at cruelty free international i think it's in, incredible um and um yeah just encourage everyone to check out the show notes so they can go and support you further thank you and, and thanks for this because you know it's no point me just sitting at home talking to myself so you know the more that the word gets <laughs> spread and I think particularly on this animal testing issue, even for people who are vegan and committed, it can still feel tricky or controversial or difficult to navigate. So it's great to be able to talk to people who are interested in veganism and to then help people just delve a little bit more in, into our area for animals in laboratories. So thank you. That's great. Thanks, Michelle. Bye now. Thank you. Bye. 